but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 88 of The Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. This is kind of a hodgepodge episode post-Wimbledon. A lot of tennis is still going on, but got like, who has time to keep track of all of it? Well, I don't know how we have time to even do this episode because we're moving in four days. Yeah, we really don't, actually. I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking of like all the photo picture frames I need to wrap and all the clothes I need to throw in boxes. <laughs> Well, it was either now or never, really, yeah. until yeah. I don't know when the next time we would have recorded if we didn't do it today. It would have been way too big of a gulf. We don't even know if we'll have Wi-Fi right away. That's true. Oh, these are dark times we're living in. But we will start off with that bit of news, that announcement that we teased at the end of last episode, because at the time of that recording, we were unsure if it was going to happen, but we found out the very next day that drum roll we will both be in cincinnati press this year we that we will we will be the body serve as a team finally mm, yeah the body serve will be represented in its entirety i'm that, excited i mean vince won't be there no that but, is true he is the logo but he will be mia mm, i'm excited i feel like it's a bit of an anti-climax because we teased it so much uh, some people were asking, you know, are you going to the U.S. Open as press? I'm like, no, not quite. We didn't really tease it that much. Maybe people just think more highly of us than we actually are. <laughs> I assure you that it's a big deal for me uh, and us. So, Well, I've done press twice before, and there are certain times communicating back and forth where you're like, well, why don't you do this? Do this, do this. And I'm like, dude, you don't know what it's like here. <laughs> okay? Like... I'm very much looking forward to you being in there for the first time and having to deal with all that. Mm -hmm. And you can come back and tell the listeners what you thought of it and where you thought you went wrong as, oh. as an outsider before. I feel like that's not very optimistic. No, no. I mean, how your perceptions of what being impressed. Oh, okay. I see. What your perceptions of being impressed, how that matched up exceeded or didn't live up to or was just totally different from what it ended up being mm. so y'all can start giving us some ideas of stuff that you want us to do maybe ideas for our coverage while we're there which players you want to hear from if possible we will definitely be doing a lot of podcasting that week because we'll be able to rely on each other in the same location to get the, mm. the episodes out because the majority of the podcasting work is the editing and the post-production. So that will be good at least. Yeah, and that's the least fun part. So just a little about what we're going to be doing on this episode. So we're going to run through the tennis news, the tournament stuff, big news with Djokovic, Nastase, all that. Then there's going to be a quiz. I'm going to be taking a quiz again. We I had I had made this agenda, and I very clearly wrote James Quizzes Jonathan and five minutes before we're recording, I was like, you got your quiz ready? Like, what quiz? It said Jonathan quizzes James. <laughs> and so I there could, I was. I really think it did. 
I had to come up with a quiz in 15 minutes. So we'll okay. see how that goes. I mean, you always could have pushed it till next episode. I could have, mm-hmm. but that's not what the agenda said. Oh, okay. And we are going to be taking listener letters for is the this, first time. Is it? I feel like we may have done it one time have before, we? but I can't remember. I don't know about y'all, but I love listener letters and mailbag stuff. Like, I live for it. It's probably it's my favorite part of the read. If you listen to the read podcast, I'm just I'm into it. So I hope you find it as enjoyable. This is not folks asking Crystal and Kid Fury life advice. But <laughs> but we are available for that too. Yeah, maybe I think that I have a pretty level head when it comes to other people. Maybe that's what we should do next time. Solicit questions for life advice. I would love that. The podcast may just turn into an advice column. The big news uh today Novak Djokovic is out for the rest of the year to rehab his elbow injury. Yeah, the bone it's a bone bruise. They found out after Wimbledon. A deep bone bruise, apparently. I think that's what I read. Mm. And of note, too, is that Agassi, they've already said that Agassi will be back with him in 2018. Yeah, I was surprised by that. Um, first things first, it's, you know, condolences go to the Nole fans and I mean that very seriously. It sucks. It's really a bad break for Novak. And he hasn't really had extended injury layoffs in his career at all. No, I think I can't this is really the first time he's missing a slam since 2006. Wow. So he's been a reliable force in men's tennis, showing up to all the big events for a long time. Mm. And he said that he'd been dealing with this issue since... 2015 and that 2015 yeah oh my god i think the u.s open 2015 so he won his novak slam with this injury that's what i read and that he's been taking pretty much he's been taking painkillers at pretty much every event since Mm. that's no fun i clearly it was hampering him quite a bit more this year uh and and i think the u.s open last year was the first time he had acknowledged this injury publicly right that he was struggling with this elbow problem i'm not an, a novak expert but i remember that at last year's u.s open i think while it sucks for fans and for the djokovic camp i think that this layoff might do him good i think a break at this point can only help him physically but also just to gather his thoughts and and figure out what's next because he was clearly not having a great year and looked fairly miserable out there. Well, if it had to do with carrying this big injury, that would explain a lot. It would explain the results that didn't match up to what had come before. For me, I'd always said consistently on this podcast that, okay, fine, Novak's results aren't what they were, but who can really sustain that level? Mm -hmm. And it's possible that it's not just a natural regression, but he was seriously injured, and that had something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because for me, it was a letdown that lasted way too long. Knowing what you know about Novak, and how mentally tough he's been over these past five, six years, it it was bigger than a slump at this point. It would make perfect sense that an injury of this magnitude would be the cause for some of the the results that we saw, not just the losing, but for example, the French Open quarterfinal against Dominic Team, that third set bagel, mm-hmm. where folks were like, well, he didn't even try. And perhaps that third set was a cumulative effect of having to carry that injury and deal with it for a year and a half or over a year. Yeah. 
And at a certain point, you just kind of break. And he was playing a regular schedule with it. I, the retirement at Wimbledon was the really alarming thing for me. That was that was surprising. And I think that made it very clear, or should have, to fans that this was something seriously physical. All the best to Novak. Get well. See you back on tour in 2018. Last week was the Hall of Fame inductions. Of note, Andy Roddick and Kim Kleisters headlined the class of 2017. Yeah. So Kim has long been one of my favorites. When I first got really into tennis, she was kind of one of my favorite women's tennis players. I loved, uh, well, that 2005 season is really like what cemented it for me when she came back from this possibly career-ending wrist injury, won Indian Wells in Miami, cleaned up over the summer, and then won the U.S. Open for her first major. Were you a fan of hers when she was taking Capriati? 12 10 in the third set at the french <laughs> open in 2001 well i didn't i didn't really know her then well you were a big capriati fan back I then. Wa- oh god don't remind me i know i really was but uh you know now our heroes have shown who they really are i was watching some old youtube videos and one of them was capriati dementieva from 2000 or something like that. And I'd forgotten just how much I enjoyed watching Capriati play. Mm-hmm. She had a fluidity to her game with the easy power and just a, a no-nonsense step up to the line, get the point started, keep the ball rolling game that was fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she played very quick, sometimes to her detriment. A lot of what you hear about Kim Kleisters now is that she was the nicest girl on tour a lot about her bubbly personality, but that's not really what drew me to Kim. I loved the way that she played the game. I loved watching her slide and, you know, do the splits and this little inside-out backhand, this little nifty shot that she had. I just really liked her game. And so the personality was a plus, I guess. You also I don't enjoyed always... that she was the foil to Justine. Yeah, Hall. I was getting there, too. Because mm-hmm. we know how you feel about the hand of Belgium. <laughs> I do think, I also appreciate, I felt like there was respect between her and Venus and Serena. I didn't really feel like there was any animosity or anything between them. Uh, Serena's meltdown at the 09 US Open was against Kim Kleisters in the semifinals, and Serena was being outplayed by Kim. There's no denying that. But uh, even when they shook hands afterward, Serena was like, sorry. Sorry about that. And Kim was like, um, is everything okay? And it was just like, it looked like two friends meeting at the net after this insane episode that just happened. Because a lesser player would have been very involved in that moment. Right, right. Andy Roddick, inducted in the Hall of Fame, shows himself again and again to be a good guy. Mm-hmm. One of the last American good dudes Yeah, well, I'm thinking of Andy Roddick now and what I think of him in the last five years since he's retired and even the back end of his career. And a lot of that being cemented with that 2009 Wimbledon final. Mm -hmm. And reconciling that to what we think of as typically American male behavior on court in sports and in tennis in the first part of his career, because he did some very unpalatable things on court. Yeah, he was. He could be very bratty. He was an extension of McEnroe to an extent. That kind well, of culture on court, but not nearly as far. Sure, but I'm just saying that 
the way I viewed him at the start of his career is nowhere close to what I think of him now. Mm. And how much of that is the the reimagining of somebody post-retirement, post-presidency, how we refashion their legacies. And I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, having a social media presence makes that a lot easier. That facilitates uh, either keeping up your image or, or changing it among fans. So Andy has a great mind for commentary and he does it really well. He does it on Twitter sometimes. You know, he live tweets matches. He's always reaching out to Serena, congratulating her and Venus because they go way back, right? So I think all those things are endearing and he just seems like a, a cool guy. He could get worked up in matches and impress and be condescending, which I didn't like. But he was also funny, so it sort of took the edge off a little bit. He for sure was a bulldog in press in some ways and was and got away with it as being humorous in yeah, some ways yeah. where, you know, certain people would not have gotten right. away with it. With that said, I'm entirely on board with you and the sentiments and how I feel about him now. Mm. You know, it was just something that I thought about especially this last week, with him being in everybody's mind's eye a lot because of the Hall of Fame induction. Mm -hmm. As far as his career, though, he was a top 10 player for so many years. He won one major at the U.S. Open in 03, and that happened to be the dawning of Roger Federer. And he reached, I think, four? He made four four more finals. finals. One was a Nostra, one, oh. one was a U.S. Open final. Okay. It was three Wimbledons and one U.S. Open final, and all of them he lost mm-hmm. to Federer. He has this self-deprecating attitude about his career that I find very endearing. But he is a great player in his own right. He doesn't need to uh, kind of poke fun at what he achieved. So moving on to the actual tennis that was played this past week, there were five tournaments around the world. Guess who's back winning a title? Back again. Backstreet's back. Well, I was going with Eminem I, I just know. there. <laughs> uh, David Ferrer. I think you mean to say David. But a lo- the other Spaniards call him David a lot. Okay. Have you noticed that? I, ha- I hadn't noticed mm-hmm. that, no. Anyway, he won a title for the first time in two years. He's been practically, he's been holding on for dear life in the top 50 lately. He's not had a great stretch over this past year. He's been injured. People were saying this is the end of Ferrer, but man, and he beat quality players. This was in Bastad in Sweden. He beat Verdasco in the semis, and he beat Dalgopolov in the finals. And this is after saving match points in the quarterfinals. I for sure thought he was probably done. <laughs> right. I think I even said so on the podcast earlier in the year. I think so. And man, he's he won in Bastad. And now he is in Hamburg, I want to say, and won his opening match again today. Mm. So he's keeping that form going. Yeah, and this was his 27th title. That's crazy. Like, not that many people, especially active players, have 27 titles. No. Um, And he won one title at the ATP level every year between 06 and 2015, except for 2009. That's a crazy stat. He's been winning for so long, consistently. He's a major finalist. He's won a Master Series title. And, man, I mean, 
he has detractors, but I think we should feel fortunate that someone like Ferrer is still out there putting in the hard yards and, and can still win. And you saw just how much the win meant to him afterward. He was very yeah. excited. Yeah. And he said that this title has proven to himself that he can still be competitive. This title has literally added time onto his career. Of note in that Bastad semifinal. <laughs> and do you want to talk about that? Mm. I feel like this is the see what happened was. Okay. Yeah, so during the semifinal, an exciting three-set match with Countryman Verdasco. Play was stopped because a gentleman just sauntered onto the court and decided to heil Hitler. Uh, it took so long for anyone to deal with it. So this guy just waltzes on the court, this Nazi, it turns out. The players back away. For Like, Ferrer looks genuinely frightened, as anyone would be, and gets the hell out of the way. And he just does a little Zeke Heil, and, uh, and then the umpire kind of wanders over. No, well, the umpire got down on the chair pretty immediately. Okay. But it's not the umpire's No, it's not his job. He's not a security guard. And so some tournament official eventually saunters onto the court afterward, taking his own sweet time walking on. Like, where the hell is security? If it's not... I mean, we've been to tournaments, and man, they search your bag in and out. God forbid you bring any freaking food from outside the tournament or deign not to pay for water. They're on that. But... At uh, any tournament... Any tournament, I don't know what it's like at Grand Slams, but every tournament that I've been to, you could so easily just run onto center court or whichever yeah. court and yeah. do whatever you want. They they can be really dickish about other things, but but the basics, like, could you get to the players? Yes, you could get at the players easily. They're on golf carts driving through the main concourse through fans. You could jump over the fence and get onto center court. In no time. And clearly, at this tournament, it would take a while for security to respond if it were an actual emergency. So, I don't know. Like, how many times does this shit have to happen? You you all are probably tired of hearing about it. There's streakers at Wimbledon. There's, you know, there's uh, somebody lit a firework at the French Open a few years ago, remember? Um, I hate to bring it up, but, like, Monica Seles, what did she suffer for if not to smarten people up her entire career was derailed because of it mm -hmm. i that was another person whose matches i went back and was looking at on youtube at the turn of the millennium it was an exciting time in women's tennis there were so many different moving parts with good to great players in operation at the same time crossing of generations and then you go back further to monica's career before the stabbing and you look at it afterward and it just breaks your heart. It does. Because watching her in the early 90s and late 80s, you're thinking this this girl is going to be an all-time great. And and could, if the conditions are right, be the greatest. I mean, Steffi was in her heyday and Monica was taking it to her consistently. I mean, this is a discussion for another time, but mm. it's possible that Monica's game would not have adapted as well post-97. Okay. Because she came back in 95, 96, made those U.S. Open finals, won Australia in 96, I believe it mm -hmm. was. Yeah. And after that, she never made another final. That's not true. She made the 98 French Open final and lost to Arancha. Mm. But after that 96 season, that was pretty much it in terms of her being 
a major, major threat. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that has to do with a distinct shift in women's tennis with Martina dominating in 97 and into 98 and the Williams sisters coming to the fore, Lindsay Davenport, Davenport. maturing into a world beater and, and, uh, mobility and dexterity in your game being a lot more important because Mm -hmm. that was something that even when Monica was winning, she didn't have in spades. Right. It's just that her strokes were so dominating. Relying on on playing off two hands off both wings. So I don't know. But that's something that we will never know because of the stabbing. Mm -hmm. Like, had her career been uninterrupted and she not lost those, what, 12 slams, 10 to 12 slams, and that momentum of what her first career was, that we'll never know the answer to that Mm -hmm. question. And my point is, I just don't think it's a given that it would have been a purple patch for the whole career. Okay. Is that a cricket term? We've talked about like this a British multiple term times. Or something? Probably. Okay. Besides the point. Uh, my, my takeaway here is this continues to be a problem. Nobody seems super concerned about solving it. Uh, my, I'm constantly beating the drum for a union or a players association because I feel that a union could step up to the plate and force tournaments and the ATP and WTA to actually deal with this situation because the safety of their employees, their members or players in this situation is something that a players association would deal with seriously. It's, it's just what has to happen for this to change. Elsewhere in Croatia, Andrei Rublev went from lucky loser to first time titleist in the same week. Right? He only got in because I believe Borna Church withdrew. Oh, yeah. And he goes on to win the tournament. He's 19. Uh, he's part of the next gen, right? He's playing for that Milan spot or something. Mm-hmm. He beat uh, Fognini, Dorig, and uh, Paolo Lorenzi in the final. So that was, I mean, quite a run for this young guy. Yulia Gerges, she makes it to the Bucharest final, where she loses to hometown favorite... Irina Camelia Begu. And in her acceptance speech for the runner-up trophy, she takes the last remaining moments with the microphone to address the crowd mm-hmm. and quite politely told them that they were rude as fuck. <laughs> she was like, you're going to listen to me now. Just, I'm teaching the children, listen you were all against me. She said thank you to, what, like the five or ten people who were actually rooting for me in this match. And then the crowd, they pent to the crowd, and the crowd is laughing and giggling. <laughs> that's and a, she's that's like, so funny, that's such a good joke. And, and she's like, they wait, know. wait mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be funny. Like, you should learn to support both players, even if one is your local hometown favorite. Mm-hmm. This is rude. And, and then she said thank you and put the microphone mm-hmm. down. It was, it was all very articulate and respectful but uh but forthright look we don't it was brave as well they could have started hurtling bottles at her they could have called her all manner of names this is a romanian crowd after all well i don't know if you want to go there (laughs) but the romanian tennis crowds have been in the news quite a bit lately (laughs) and uh gerges is not she's just not gonna sit back and take it this was also the weekend for weddings yeah, there are, there are not many summer 
spring and summer weeks that a tennis player can get married, right? So everybody got married this week. Agarodwanska, Andrea Lavachkova, Julian Beneteau got married. Marin Cilic got engaged. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. And uh, Pico, Mark Lopez, and Rafa's friend got married. They were all in attendance at the wedding, mm. wearing bow ties. It was very cute. Looked super dapper. I mean, when does when does Juan Monaco not look dapper? I'm told by Susie Reed on Twitter that it was their friend Joan who got married. Jo- Are you sure that's not Juan? No, it was Joan. It was a girl? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's wonder, the information I have. I wonder how many Spanish girls are named Joan. What else? John Isner won the Newport Hall of Fame tennis title on grass in Rhode Island. It's always the same week as the Hall of Fame inductions, and he's won it like 27 times. Um, is it's there... more like three or four. True. That's that's closer to being right. He, I mean, not to take away, he won a title, whatever, whatever. But he did not face anyone within the top 140. Nor did he face a breakpoint all tournament. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that that's something. Sam Groth, Denis Novikov, Bjorn Fortangelo, and Matt Ebden in the final. Mm. So good on you. You know, take those points where you can get them. The Ilya Nastasi verdict came in from the ITF. He's suspended in an official capacity from ITF team competitions until 2019 and cannot participate as a captain or in a hired way until something like 2022. Mm. And so this, of course, does not apply to Grand Slams or regular tour events. So we will be seeing his ass in Jan Tiriak's box in Madrid next year. Well, of course... And it's it's up to the federations as well, the who run the Grand Slams, if they want to invite him or or allow entry, basically. Because the ITF said, not only can you not be a coach or captain, you're not even allowed in to team competitions within the next few years. I don't remember which, you know, which year was which. Um, he was also fined $10,000. If you have a chance, Google the ITF Ilya Nastasi decision. It's a very interesting read. It's about 15 pages long. I read it today. It goes through, it's kind of like a legal proceeding. It goes through the charges, Nastase's defense, the ITF's case, and then the decision. So the, the main charges against Nastase were, the first was the racially insensitive comment about Serena's fetus. And we did find out that an, invest, an investigation was launched even before the tie started. It, the night before is when he said it and made some harassing comments to Anne Kjothevang as well. But he was pulled aside before the tie began the next day and was told, listen, the ITF has started an investigation into what you said about Serena's baby. So that was already in motion, apparently. So I'm sure he was a little turned up about that, right? And then, as we all saw, he just spiraled out of control that day. So the second offense was sexual advances toward Anne Kjothevang, repeated. And then there were the abusive comments to the press, and then abusive comments to the Great Britain team and match officials, and then interfering with the with the Great Britain team. So there was like all kinds of shit to deal with here. And the ITF was obviously pissed. They tried to present 
a very forceful case. Well, Nastasi is saying that as part of his defense that he comes from a nation where racism is not, quote, as delicate an issue as it may be in other parts of the world. <laughs> his, like, his defense is actually very entertaining and also disappointing reading. It did make me laugh. Noting that his friendships with Arthur Ashe and Yannick Noah are evidence that he's not racist. Mm-hmm. Well, there to his are credit, some rumors. To his credit, most people just say, well, I have that one black friend. Mm-hmm. He gave us two. <laughs> he had two black friends. <laughs> and, well, one of them is dead, so he really can't, really can't <laughs> defend himself. Nastase's mitigating circumstances are the most entertaining part because it does feel like he wrote it rather than a team of lawyers. <laughs> he said, quote, his well-known unconventional humor and impulsive character rather than any wrongful intent. And it was mitigated by, quote, exaggerated and biased media reporting. But, I mean, Nastase was part of this punishment is because he followed Eleanor Crooks, a British reporter, and threatened her and called her fucking stupid and all these all manner of horrible things and threatened her after he saw her videotaping his tirade. The reporting could be exaggerated, but it is also all on tape. Like, we've all seen it. There's just not much to do with it. So I think this is a good test to see if the rest of the tennis world takes these things seriously. Because the ITF does. They don't want them around. It's bad press. For whatever reason, they they were forceful about this. Because it's probably embarrassing for them. But are, do the Grand Slams care yeah, as but much? but people were saying he should be banned for life from all tennis, and this is mm-hmm. two years. Yeah. So how seriously do you take it if it's just two years? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Are you ready for another quiz? I am. There's ten questions. Keep in mind that I came up with these questions very last minute. Mm-hmm. The first one, who is this person? Miroslava Vavrenkova. I... I know who that is. Who is that? That's Mirka Federer. Uh-huh. Kim Clijsters was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame this past weekend. How many slam finals did she make? Oh, shit. Okay. So she won four. I know that. And then she made the 01 French Open, which we were just talking about. Um, I would say she was probably in... I think she was in nine. She was an eight. Oh, I was shit. And they the other three were to Justine, right? Yes. Yeah. She lost Damn. her first four and then went four and zero, starting in two thousand five, mm. and she finished an even split four and four. This player holds the record for most games won in a Grand Slam final. Most games won. Yes. So okay, so it's a really long final. <laughs> uh, Roger Federer. That is incorrect. Okay. The answer is Andy Roddick against Roger Federer Stop. in 2009. Stop. Are you serious? Yeah. He won more games? Yeah. Ugh. Speaking of Andy Roddick, he won his only slam title in his first try in 2003. Who was his opponent? Ferrero. Yes. Schneider has beaten 13 players who have been ranked number one during her career. Name 10 of them. Okay. So I'll just go ahead so you're and just name gonna, them. you're just going to name 10, and I'll tell you how many you got. Okay. So there's Lindsay, Hingis, Capriati, um, I probably Venus, Ivanovic, Yankovic, Wozniacki, Safina, Moresmo, 
And I will say Kim. That's 10. You got 8 of 10 correct. Oh, okay. Who was wrong? Well, Schneider is also 0-18 combined against three former world number ones. Oh, shit. Name those three. Oh, uh, oh, but you didn't tell me who was... Oh. Mm. Um, Serena. Serena. Um, Monica Sellis and Venus. So you got... Were any of those right? <laughs> so when you were naming 10... You were incorrect with Safina. Mm. You were incorrect. I believe you said Venus in the first go-round, didn't yeah. you? Mm-hmm. I did, yeah. So how is it that you say Venus for the first answer and then Venus again oh, for well, the second I just, one? I just assumed she was one of the wrong ones. So those were the two that you were wrong with, mm. Safina and Venus. Okay. And then Monica Sellis was a third okay. that she never beat. Oh, so... So the 13 players that she did beat, Hingis, Devonport, Serena, Graf, Arancha, Wozniacki, Yankovic, Ivanovic, Kleisters, Enna, Sharapova, Capriati, and Moresmo. Oh, so I did pretty well. Yeah. She's 0-3 against Celis, 0-4 against Safina, and 0-11 against Venus. Oh. But she did beat oh, Serena. Damn. Okay. This player has won the most matches on the ATP Tour without winning a Grand Slam tournament. Ferrer. Yes. Name the tennis player. I'm going to give you five clues. WTA player. Career high number four singles. Eight singles titles. Reached a minimum quarterfinal at all four slams. And is described under playing style on Wikipedia as, quote, all stealthy, neat athleticism. Uh, did you, you didn't say if she was a major winner or not. No, I said that she's made minimum quarterfinals at all four slams. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I'll say Yana Navana. It's Kimiko Date. Oh, okay. Okay. This Olympic silver medalist just announced that he's retiring from singles play. Oh, shit. Olympic silver medalist? In what? In tennis? In tennis, yes. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think who retired. I, I don't remember anything. This goes to... Oh, it sh- could be in doubles, right? I'm not telling you anything. Mm. Man, I am terrible. Marty Fish? Well, if you were paying he attention to my This Week in Tennis, you'd know it's Rajiv Ram. He's retiring. From singles Didn't to focus on win, doubles. did win something in Newport? He retired in Newport. Oh, oh. But he has won... He won Newport in singles and doubles, right? Last year? He's won it twice. Mm. And finally, Andrei Rublev went from lucky loser to champ in Croatia last weekend, the seventh player to do so on the ATP, and first since this player in 2009 at Newport. Oh, great. Um, 2009, Newport. Sam Quarry. Rajiv Ram. Oh, come on. That was a trick question. Okay, that was hard. I did not do very well. I'm sure there are listeners who will do much better than I did. But it was very fair. Yeah. And was, I think I did very well it was a to good come quiz. up with this on the cuff. Yeah. On to our listener mailbag segment. So we got a lot of nice submissions. Thank you so much. Uh-huh. 
Let's, First, let's start with the let's pettiness. Just, let's just eeny, meeny, miny, mo. No, you... we'll start with Tony. Who? TJC05. Oh, her. I don't, I don't talk to trolls, so I didn't even read this question. So Tony has been at us every which way he can possibly <laughs> to get us to be as contrite and apologetic mm-hmm. and own up to our wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. For, as he would say, causing the downfall of the Williams Empire. He, I mean, he needs, like, a reconciliation committee. It, it's that serious. His question is, on a scale of 9 to 10, <laughs> how guilty do you feel that your predictions have ruined two Williams slams? Related, how do you sleep knowing this? <laughs> Um, okay, so I know Wimbledon. I I single-handedly ruined yes, it for Venus because yes. I picked Muguruza even before the tournament started. Uh-huh. But I can't remember what's the other one that we ruined, Tony? Kerber's bust-out year. But we didn't say she was going to win Australia. No, we well, definitely we said did not that say. she was going to bust we, out. Okay, that's, Tony, that's a little bit of a stretch, hon. But again, we are very sorry. I'm I'm very sorry about the Muguruza thing. That's fucked up. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I agree with Tony in so, that regard. So, on a scale of 9 to 10, to answer your question, I feel 10 guilty. Definitely. And I'm Catholic, so I know all about 10 guilty. Jason, who you may know as Hurley Tennis, he wants to know, how do I also move from another country to Canada forever? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> is the other country you're referring to America? The United States of America? Well, it seems that way. I think well, so. he lives in mm-hmm. DC. We we could send you the link to Immigration Canada if you'd like, but the the easiest way for me was to meet some a Canadian person and make him fall in love, string him along for ten years. Is that what? And happened? then he will file for immigration papers for you. So that's how I got my glow up. You were so lucky that that paperwork was filed long before you went and picked Muguruza to win Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Because your ass would have been... You'd be swimming back to Rochester, New York on Lake Ontario. Well, I mean, we have a water border. It can be done. A water border? Yeah. Like waterboarding? A water... No, like the border <laughs> between Ontario and New York is water. Are you giving me ideas as to how to punish you for that prediction? <laughs> No, but to be fair, you filed papers for me a long time ago. We were, like, practically new back then, and you weren't even a citizen yet. No. Which, I guess, is a good segue into this next question mm-hmm. from Kristen Whelan, who is at KTW News. How did you two meet? That is such a sweet question. Thank you so much for asking. I don't know if other people are interested in this. But I'll tell it, because you always tell the story. Okay. So we, Jonathan and I both went to Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York, uh, for our undergrad. And we, it's a small school. It's like 6,000 in the undergraduate program. And it's this sort of idyllic, magical, like, left-wing pocket in central New York. It's a really, like, physically beautiful place, too. There's all these waterfalls and gorges and everything. To be clear, uh, I didn't feel that way about it while I was there because I was freshly emigrated from Jamaica to Canada and then went to school in the States mm. that same fall. 
and it was my first winter, and all I could think my four years there was, well, this is fucking cold. (laughs) (laughs) It is cold and windy. But, uh, so we both, we both spent four years there, and we didn't actually meet until our final year. I spent my first, uh, first semester of senior year abroad in Italy, and then when I came back, we kind of got together. We had met before. Full disclosure, I was the more interested party. You really gonna put that out? <laughs> uh, like I was into Jonathan first, but I was very, very shy. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we just sort of encountered each other a few times, and then we decided to give it a go. Well, my reservations were that this was the final semester of college. My visa was about to expire. Yeah. They were kicking my ass out the country. Like, what was I doing, starting a relationship with some American dude who could not file paperwork for me? <laughs> <laughs> right it was like well i don't know i'm just not gonna be too invested in this right mm. now three months out from graduation and you know what sometimes you just can't resist you don't plan these things they just happen uh and that's that and there's, so, there's more a little bit more to the story but that's that's all that we'll share yeah that's right all now. i'm willing to share <laughs> and so uh we both took a year off i lived at home in rochester you went back to the toronto so area just as we say that that's all that we're going to oh, share. Oh. You go <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't going to share anything embarrassing. <laughs> so yeah, long story short, we went to college together, and, and uh, then you came here and, for grad school. Yes. Then I basically I, I immigrated to Canada in in steps. Okay. Here's one I like. Alex, who's at ABL five forty, asked our thoughts on the Real Housewives of Atlanta reunion and the subsequent fallout. I feel I feel like we could do an entire podcast about mm-hmm. this. Because Miss Phaedra Parks allowed herself to be had. She did herself in. Wow. She played herself. I I thought Phaedra was smarter than that. She wrote all the receipts for everybody else to bring to that reunion. She's like, here's some receipts. Be sure to use it at uh, the 20-minute mark. You can drop that. You can drop that. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, for somebody who prides herself as being so smart and a lawyer and so professional... This was a dereliction of duty in how she buried herself. <laughs> Disbar her. Right. That's like, how are you still a lawyer if you allowed yourself to be seen in this light? Mm-hmm. How they, do you show your face on TV again? I mean, they dragged her so bad. And, like, we knew it was bad. We knew that Phaedra probably had a hand in starting these rumors about Candy. Because we saw it on on video, right? She was out with... What's her face? Portia and Sheree. And she was making all these gestures and saying they're fucking each other and Shamia and they're inviting Shamia into her bed and blah, 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 blah. But then when it became clear that not only did Phaedra start the rumors about the drugging and the sexual assault, possibly, it was that Portia didn't even know that the seed was just planted in Portia. And when that revelation came out, she was broken. Portia is so dumb. Man, that was like one time I felt bad for old girl. Yeah, well, she just blindly assumed. Yeah. How many times was she warned I mean, she about is, Portia, she, about uh, Phaedra? She, she was warned dumb. many times. She is really dumb, but like she was looked genuinely hurt. And Phaedra was just there like, uh, I don't know what to do now. I guess it was bad, you know, but I think that I, you know, it was just, it was, I misspoke. I don't know. I didn't have any <laughs> bad intentions. 
I I have I've always liked Candy. I have reservations about Candy because of the kind of the the bullshit from her family and from her squad that she tolerates. But I was happy to see Candy vindicated because she was the only one telling the truth. She was trying to defend herself the whole season. And you know, when you are trying to tell the truth and you're confronted with someone who will lie unabashedly, it is so frustrating. It's impossible to describe, but I think everyone has been there. How do you argue with someone who will just lie? It was one of the most jaw-dropping hours of TV that we watched all year. <laughs> oh my lord. I, I mean, we looked at each other and like screamed. <laughs> <laughs> who said it? Who has been saying that? And all along it was Miss Phaedra Parks, <laughs> Esquire. So LLC Limited Lying Corporation. <laughs> <laughs> so to answer your question, as far as the subsequent fallout, I have been dreading the day that Kim Zosia comes back to Atlanta. Listen, I've been but, telling you that the show needed it for a I'm, long time. Now I will concede that I'm kind of looking forward to her trailer trash ass coming back to the show. I've been telling you for years now that the show is missing Kim and it's missing Kim and Nini. Like they mm. needed to get back a lot more of the originality of this of this group. Yes, and and we saw how that worked this year with Sheree. Sheree is my favorite of the OGs by far. She, she's funny. She's a shit stirrer, but she's not evil. She looks better than ever. She looks amazing. She's in incredible shape, and I think she's in a. I'm happy for Sheree. I think she's in a better place in her life, and Nini needed to go. Because yeah, Nini was a dark cloud, but she could still bring something to the show when she comes back. Nini's a bully, is what she Nini is. is. But Nini needs Sheree and Kim. Like, they, they need to exist together because Kim is also a bully. One of the best segments of TV, reality TV ever, was when Sheree, Nini, and Kim went out to dinner... And Kim left that table, and Sheree went following after her and tugged on that wig. Oh my! Oh and she's like, God. "I, I, I didn't. What did you say? I didn't pull her wig. I just. I shipped. wasn't. I wasn't trying to pull her wig. I just off. shifted it. A I little just bit. wanted to shift it a little. <laughs> <laughs> and that was echoed several years later by Serena Williams. I did not say I would kill you. Oh my God! <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> so I think. Housewives of Atlanta has a bright future ahead. Dr. Scholes asks, or mothers listen to this, so we're going to mm -hmm. say, well, he says... Well, it rhymes, so you have to say it once. Okay, he says, Chuck, fuck, marry. Mm -hmm. We know it more as kill, fuck, marry. Yeah. Or... At least that's what they say I in guess Canada. the PG version, um, kill, have relations with, or mm. marry. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the options are Djokovic, Federer, and Vavrinka. And this oh, is, that's so easy for this me. This is the easiest one yeah, I've ever had. For real. And I'd be shocked if we don't have the same answer, mm -hmm. and I'm going to go first. I think you, sad to say, to kick him when he's down, Djokovic gets killed. Yeah, sorry. Or ch chucked is a, chucked. Is a nicer word chucked, in this yeah. case. Yeah. Sorry, Scholes, because I know he's your boo. Uh, Vavrenka, he is the one you have relations with. Definitely. And Federer, obviously with that bank account, you marry that ass. I know. You know, and you do not sign a prenup. <laughs> Mine is exactly the same for the same reasons. And with Federer, I would marry Federer because I'm not someone who needs to be the center of attention. And he is. And I would cede that spotlight. 
He's a diva, and that's fine. That's fine. I don't need it. Keep it. But Federer, I'm sure he takes good care of his family, would and he's you, got money. Would you be able, you're willing, but would you mm-hmm. be able to step into Mirka's shoes? I mean, who who could, really? That is the challenge with marrying Federer. Yeah. I don't know that I would want to be tied to him in the marital bed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, is, Moving on. Is that part of the duty? Moving on. I need clarification from <laughs> Scholes if this is part of the game. <laughs> Dr. Scholes also wants to know, who are your five early favorites for the U.S. Open on the WTA oh, side? Oh, Scholes like, has questions. Like, okay. did we not just get over Wimbledon? Like, we are not even in the full th- thrust of the hardcore swing yet. Mm-hmm. And you're asking us to think about this. Uh, I'm going to abstain from that question. We will definitely come back to it. I don't know if I can give you five, but I'm going to give you a couple. Could you give like 55? I'm th- Well, I have three on my mind right now. You know what? I'm not even going to go too far out with the people to look at. I'm going to go with the people who've shown us that they're capable so far. I'm going to go with Venus, Pliskova, Wozniacki, Halep, and Kanto. Those are the five I'm going with. Those are safe picks, and that's what that's what I got. Okay. Mara Lawson wants to know if we think Djokovic can pull a Federer with the rest of the year off. And I'll take this one. I think, well, before this year, I would have thought that if anyone could pull a Federer, it would be Djokovic. I wouldn't. I really wouldn't be surprised if he does come back refreshed, wins the Australian Open easily. He he's young enough. He's fit. He knows how to win. Like, I think the the break can really do him good, and it will be a lot less surprising than Federer's year. There's just no way to prognosticate this. All you can go by is what he's done before, and Mm -hmm. he is one of the all-time greats. Right. And what Federer has done is magical as well. Let me not go into that way of describing (laughs) it as we... (laughs) We kind of railed against in our last episode. But, you know, he is he's doing amazing things. And if somebody else can do something that amazing, it's Novak. Right. Or it's Rafa. Or it's, well, well I mean, those three. I think that's it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So could he do it? Definitely. Will he? No idea. Exactly. Sam, Samuel said this, wants to know, do you love it or really love it when I refer to you both as my daddies? <laughs> <laughs> Sam, our Manchester friend, who some someday he'll either come here or we'll go to the UK and we'll, we'll finally meet up. He really wants us to be his daddies. And I have to admit, at first I was like, yo, I'm not that old. For the non-queer folk out there, mm. you want to explain... Um, a little bit more about the daddy I, thing? I don't know. Am I qualified to explain? Are you saying you're not old enough to be a daddy? Is that it? <laughs> <laughs> there, you know, it's just a, a, a subculture, daddy-son in the gay community. It's not like incest shit. It's just, you know, just a May-December romance, as you straight people call it. Or as um, he tells us, it's more of spiritual guidance. Exactly. <laughs> it's not only sexual. It's like apprenticeship, you know? And so, uh, while I'm not fond of being a father of any sort, mm-hmm. other than to Vince, the beagle, a or pop- dog. A puppy. <laughs> uh, and I'm certainly, although I'm on the cusp of 33, not old enough 
in my mind's eye to be a daddy. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, in gay world, you get old fast. Yeah. But spiritual guidance, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'll be a fine. I'm 31. I'll ad- I will. You'll be his preacher teacher. I will be daddy, zaddy, whatever. <laughs> preacher teacher. <laughs> and finally, a thoughtful question from San F77. That is S A N F77. I wonder if that's San Francisco 77. I don't know. I don't know where the breaks are. So the question is how did you start podcasting and why? In parentheses, passion, insufficient coverage, question mark. Do you consider following the circus one day and quitting your day job? Well, the the podcasting was your idea. Really, mm-hmm. I was kind of along for the ride. The podcasting started because I have two degrees, a, ma- a bachelor's and a master's <laughs> Is that how it started? in sports sociology slash sport history. And when I decided that I wasn't going to go on and do a PhD, I needed to find a way to transfer those skills somewhere. And so we would be sitting on the couch all the time talking. We'd be watching TV and then just end up talking about tennis for 20, 30 minutes. And I was thinking, well, this is some decent stuff that could be on a podcast. Why not? And at that time, neither of us had any idea how to do a podcast. Absolutely no technical expertise. No, And it was all from the ground up, researching, getting it done on our own. And we decided, I think it was good that 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 idea came in December, and we were able to start mm-hmm. afresh in January. And so the body serve started in January 2015, and we will have had at the end of the season three full tennis seasons that coincide with the three seasons of the body mm-hmm. serve. And we've kept it pretty regular. Yeah. I mean, probably averaging, you know, three episodes a month since then. But yeah, that's how it started, just wanting to not have my brain power in particular with respect to talking about sport from a a sociocultural sociopolitical perspective have that go to waste Mm -hmm. and i don't even i didn't really have a good grasp of the tennis podcasting landscape at the time so it wasn't about filling a space for me at least there i do feel like there's still a huge space in mainstream tennis commentary and that's why a lot of these podcasts have found an audience and found a very loyal audience because network coverage is is very narrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I remember sitting here in January of that year, and most of the time we'd be talking about Maria and Serena, or, or you know, or Venus and Serena, it's kind of the social and the cultural implications of these players. And I was thinking, like, who is going to want to listen to us? Like, we we're not experts, but I've been so heartened since we've started doing this, that people actually do want to listen and also contribute their own voices. Mm-hmm. And it's never been about the the scores, the results. It's mostly always about the tennis outside the lines for us. And mm. that's borne out in some of the episodes that we've done. We covered Serena's return to Indian Wells. We've covered the Williams sisters and race and how they're framed within the North American discourse with respect to how women and black women and black women athletes are talked about Mm. and we we've covered andy murray and we did a whole episode on andy murray and why his feminism matters and so these outside the line kind of stuff is what really get us going and sometimes we write an agenda to do an episode and it's like oh my god this is going to be such a slog because (laughs) we're just regurgitating results and it feels like we're adding nothing 
Mm. To... And that's just not us. No. Yeah. So thank you, everyone, for your questions. I could do this stuff for every podcast. So keep them coming. This will this will might be a, a returning segment. I think we've added right. a couple of a good ones lately. We've got Girl Bye. And now we've got the listener mailbag. Mm-hmm. If you got... have any like relationship troubles or things like that, I would be happy to weigh in as well. I've been talking to our Twitter friend and listener Fabian, and he's very much an expert on the Emmys, actresses, pop culture. It's something that we really like to talk about, and I, I could have a podcast about this by itself, like apart from tennis. Um, so we've been talking about the Emmy nominations and TV in general. So Emmy nominations every year in the past few years, I've been coming back to this lead actress in a comedy category, which is absolutely stacked overflowing. Like there could be 25 legit nominees and winners in this category. It's crazy. The wealth of comedy actresses there are right now. And the nominees, to be honest, are um, a little over- underwhelming, but this is the Emmys. So we got Tracy Ellis Ross, who is incredible. Like, I absolutely adore her in Blackish. Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Allison Janney. Those are kind of the three who I respect so much and I think are incredibly talented, but I would chop from this category. Allison Janney for Mom? Yeah. yeah that's crazy. And the thing is, like, Allison Janney is is sublime in basically anything that she does, but she's won a bunch of times. She's nominated for everything she does, so I think we can keep her out. If you are to choose Grace and Frank to be nominated, you choose one. You don't do both. Mm. Like, I know, I'm but they're sorry. both legends. And they are, but like... the, in this category, you have to go with one or none. The other nominees are Pamela Adlon for Better Things, which, full disclosure, I have never seen. But she was super, super excited and humbled by her nomination. So good on her. Um, Ellie Kemper, who I think is brilliant. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who, I mean, she's won, what, five times for Veep? She has, like, but she is so good on that show. She, she gets nominated like, every time and she deserves I it. I can't begrudge her. That, no. Like, she has to be there. She's She is our first lady of comedy. For me, Ellie Kemper goes easily. Mm. I know you're a big fan of what she does on I that show. I am a big fan, but for this last season... I would yeah. probably say, yeah. Overall, the last season was nowhere near as good as season one, mm. in my in my opinion. And she had a, a much lesser role in season two. Yeah. But so. where is Issa? Where is Insecure? Insecure was completely shut out at the Emmys. Issa Rae, I think critics, uh, critics have come around to the fact that she can act her ass off. She's not playing herself. She is a really great performer, and she's funny as hell. I told you that this show was going to mm-hmm. be overshadowed by Atlanta. No, but what? stop comparing it to Atlanta. You're comparing two black shows. It's not I, fair. It's like, not me doing this. No, but, I'm telling you that this is what is happening. No. That's I, what's happening. No, I. but I think you, you mentioning it over and over is not helping. It's not fair to compare those two shows. I don't i it's not that i compare it without reason people fawn over atlanta because donald glover is appropriating this white white male comedy shtick no but i don't agree at all like his version of it is completely different it's up from another planet my point you know? is it's the type of thing 
that people will fawn over. Whereas yeah, it will yeah. take Insecure a little bit more time to build that kind of appreciation. And even from season one to the first episode of season two, you see a completely different aesthetic from the show. It seems like the budget's higher. Mm-hmm. They're being I mean, dressed differently. It has a just incredible buzz going around it. It's a type of show that would have been ignored for the first go around for all those reasons. And I'd look for it to be better appreciated after season yeah. two. Like you have Melina Matsukis as their director. She has such a brilliant visual style that she's lent to the show. She's worked with Beyonce, Solange, everybody. I mean, the the first if the first episode is an indication of what season two is going to be like, this is on another level. And the first season was damn good. I'm really struggling with your comments now about what? Atlanta and Insecure. We also have Blackish nominated in that category. Yeah. Like, on what planet in North America is three all black shows going to get like recognized <laughs> at the same time? Like, what, what's right. like of those three, Insecure is the one that's going to be overlooked for really? myriad reasons. But really, though? Yeah, because. I mean, Blackish, Blackish yes. has Blackish have, has the network cred. Yeah, they have a stake in and as you said previously, yes, that's part of what these nominations are. Mm-hmm. With Allison Janney for Mom and Tracy Ellis Ross, they want to prove that the network model still works. So that's where that comes in. Mm. And then Issa Rae is like an upstart on HBO and a black woman doing her own thing and being her own showrunner. Like, uh, I'm sorry, like she's just not going to get the same initial. Appreciation like Lena Dunham did when she did Girls. Yeah. And that was immediate. That's it's, the thing. It sucks. It and sucks. Insecure was what my favorite thing last year. But this is just... I'm not yeah. shocked about it. Like, I can't allow myself to be shocked by this anymore. Because Girls was recognized immediately. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, Lena Dunham was excellent on the season of Girls. And she's normally nominated in this category as a matter of just habit. And I think this is a year that she was genuinely deserving and was overlooked, which is fine. Justina Machado could have easily gone in over Alison Jenny. Yeah. Rachel Bloom could have gone in over Kemper. Ugh. And of course, your this, fave, uh, my, Gina Rodriguez. My CW girls, Gina Rodriguez and Rachel Bloom are doing just unconventional, crazy things on their shows. They, I mean, they deserve to have a category unto themselves. Long and short of it, we'd have changed a lot of it. Yeah, but the Emmys are getting a little more adventurous than they have been in the past. I mean, that actress category in miniseries and movie, like, we knew before it came out that it was going to be extremely competitive. You have Carrie Coon from Fargo, who was look overlooked for The Leftovers, but recognized for Fargo. Felicity Huffman, Nicole Kidman, Jessica Lange, Sir- Susan Sarandon, Reese Witherspoon. So you have, uh, what, four Oscar winners in that category. Carrie Coon is... We just started watching The Leftovers. She is absolutely stunning to me. I'm so drawn to her. Just whatever she does, I will watch. But, Matt, like, Reese Witherspoon is my vote in that category. I fucking loved her in Big Little Lies. I'd have gone with Kidman, and I'm not a Kidman fan, but I thought her performance... That's good, too. Like ...on that show was a slow build to just something absolutely spectacular by the end of it. Not to take anything away from Reese, or you could say that Susan Sarandon and, and Jessica Lang were doing caricatures of real life people, but there were some moments when they were playing opposite each other in that in that series 
of feud mm-hmm. that it was some of the best TV you'll see all year, even if just for two minutes. Right. I mean, these that two have when, inc- incredible star that power. That scene when they're talking to each other in the courtyard, when I think Jessica Lang goes out to go and confront Susan Sarandon for not being invited to the party or passive-aggressively mm. asks her to keep the party down when she's really in her feelings because she wasn't invited. Yeah. Like, that scene was amazing. I'm Felicity Huffman doesn't really belong there, I'm sorry. Not for American Crime, not for this season. Actually, yeah, I wasn't really into this season. She's very talented, mm-hmm. and I really, really like her, but yeah, she's kind of the odd woman out to me there. If Laura Dern doesn't win for Best Supporting, I'm going to be very upset. Laura Dern Woodley was, should not win. Laura Dern was fire. Like, she burned off the screen. Just witty and amazing. Mm. I did not enjoy Shailene Woodley. Mm. I mean, she wasn't bad. I, I don't think she was bad. I don't think it was like a glaring weakness. It's just that it's hard to measure up to these other mm. women. RuPaul gets nominated for Best Reality Competition and Best Host. Hey! So she was nominated last year for Host, but this is the first time it's gotten into the Best Reality Competition. And it which is, is like, hello, about time. Name one better reality TV show. Right? right? Like, Top Chef wins every goddamn year, or The Amazing Race, or whatever. Like, The Voice is not a better show than RuPaul. I'm sorry. The other thing that we're excited for that's back, Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And we will finally, it seems, in episode three, have a meeting of Daenerys and Jon Snow. Finally. Will we, though? It's That's what the preview says. Really? The preview show has him showing up, and the door is open, and there is Daenerys mm. on that, that stone throne. People have, like, mad theories about this. People think they're going to be, like, screwing each other immediately. And I just don't, I don't see it at all. Here's my theory. I'm not a book reader. I don't think that they both survive the series. I think that one or the other, like, sacrifices him or herself for the good of the realm. Who are these people who have time to come up with all these theories? And, like, I, like, I just want to watch it. The Like, the John Daenerys shippers? Like, I don't think that's going to happen. No, I would I really like to don't. see it happen. If for no other reason than the fact that we've only gotten two glimpses of him mm-hmm. in the nude on that show over six seasons is an absolute outrage. And this is our <laughs> best shot. Because Egret or Egret or whatever. Yeah, 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 right. Or, Egret. Yeah, Egret. Like, in the winter pond... The magic spring. In that cave. Yeah, yeah, in the cave. Like, And that wasn't even him. That was a stunt double because he had a broken leg or something. Well, we've seen the real thing since. And... Yeah, but like, he's been stuck up north defending the wall and fully clothed well, and, for too long. And they were celibate, you know. Yes. But we have we have Lawrence. We have Jay Ellis from Insecure. Who needs Jon Snow? I mean, like, <laughs> I am fully on the Lawrence train. There's nothing wrong with having both of them. True, true. But a Lawrence Hive took off as a hashtag. I don't really know what Lawrence Hive is. Is it supposed to be their take on the beehive? I get uh, people. I guess people are supposed to pick between Issa and Lawrence, and I feel like there's really no winning. No taking sides in this. But man, I'm here. I am here for more Lawrence. And shout out to Molly's therapist's office <laughs> on Insecure because. Those cascading bookshelves are life goals. Oh, I didn't even notice. You didn't? We're going to have to watch it over. Oh, my God. You were just so distracted by Lawrence. I was, like, fanning myself you were getting over two, Lawrence. Yeah. two sex scenes from Lawrence in one episode. <laughs> That's not fair. It was just fair. too much for you. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. 
Thank you so much for everyone who submitted questions. Thank you if you have made it to this point, made it through our TV commentary, etc. Um, yeah, this was a really fun episode to record. I think next week we'll probably have a little more Tennessee stuff to talk about. I don't know if we'll be recording next week. Or in two weeks, whatever. Yeah. We're, so we're moving next week, which is why we may be in upheaval. There may be something... Because there'll be the Rogers Cup tennis with the WTA in Toronto the week before we go to Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. So you ha- you have weekends off now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're strictly a Monday to Friday 9 to fiver. Yeah, yeah. So you have no excuse to not go to the free weekend and watch some tennis there. And All also right. you can go to Monday, Tuesday night tennis at Rogers Cup. T- tickets are cheap. So there'll be something coming from that. <laughs> oh, can I? Yeah. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. My name is James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is on Twitter at the Body Serve. Similarly, at the Body Serve on Instagram. And hopefully, within the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to add some more new pictures to Instagram. Not nude, new pictures to I Instagram. See. Mm-hmm. Because we'll be at some live tennis, right? Till next time.